You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us today. We're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis, and my co-host is my trusty service dog, Whistle. And Whistle and I are so excited to have as our guest today, best-selling author Susan Orlean. And Susan is the best-selling author of seven books, but her latest book is about one of the first and most well-known working dogs, Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. So come right back after these quick messages from our sponsors as we begin our visit with Susan Orlean. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Petco, where the pets go. Petco, where the pets go. Pet Life Radio has tail wagging, fur flying, fabulous deals for our listeners from Petco. Get $6 off your order of $60 or more and up to 40% off the entire Petco site. That's right. But that's not all. Because you're a Pet Life Radio listener, you'll also get free shipping on your order of $49 or more. $6 off, up to 40% off, and free shipping from Pet Life Radio and Petco. To get these awesome deals, go to PetcoDeals.com. That's PetcoDeals.com. Petco, where the pets go. Dyson. The new Dyson Animal Vacs are powerful, bagless, upright vacuums for homes with pets. Air muscle and radio root cyclone technology generates the strongest suction power to powerfully remove dust, dirt, and pet hair from the home or car. To order your Dyson Animal Vac, go to PetLifeRadio.com forward slash Dyson. PetLifeRadio.com forward slash Dyson. To order your Dyson Animal Vac today. Dyson. Music to your ears. Hi, this is Tim Link, host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Join me as we feature interviews with best-selling pet-related authors, award-winning writers, journalists, and bloggers. And we'll tell stories about the animals and interesting topics about the animals in our lives. Each of the interviews will give you a first-hand knowledge about why the authors and writers chose a particular story, what the feature animals meant to them, and what has become of those animals that we've talked about. And of course, I'll also share stories from my own books, blogs, articles, and experiences. So be sure to join me and the writers and authors on Animal Rights. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Whistle and I would like to welcome our guest to the show today, Susan Orlean. Hello, Susan, and welcome. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Yeah, we're so thrilled that you could be with us today and and talk with us about your latest project. And so tell us, how did you decide to write a book about Rin 1010? Well, I suppose secretly nobody could possibly resist the idea of writing a book about a dog, right? It's such an appealing subject. But the the way this came about was kind of interesting. I was working on a story for the New Yorker magazine about dogs in Hollywood. 
and the history of of animals in film. Anytime you do research on that subject, you are guaranteed to come across the name of Rin Tin Tin. And I did. And the minute I saw his name, I had a really powerful reaction, which kind of surprised me. I grew up with Rin Tin Tin, but I was very young. So it surprised me that my reaction was so emotional and so potent. I had been a newborn baby when the Rin Tin Tin show came on the air in the 1950s. So my experience of it was much more emotional than specific. And I had been absolutely madly in love with the idea of having a German Shepherd just from having grown up with this German Shepherd on the television. That alone would have been sort of interesting to write about, but what really interested me was learning very quickly that the Rintintin that I thought I knew, namely this 1950s character on the television show, had a fascinating life and a real life, and that he was not merely a dog in a TV show, but actually a real dog who had, in fact, been born in World War One. in a completely different context from what I had imagined to be the, the story of his life. And I just got completely absorbed in it and fascinated by it because it was just an incredible story. And I think you really touched on your the reaction that you had to Rent and Ten when you were looking, doing your research, that I think that's how so many people, it resonates with so many people because I think so many, uh, several generations have such a profound feeling for Rent and Ten. I mean, he just embodied heroism and the American spirit. You know, exactly. And, I, yeah. and, and for many, many generations, which was what was a complete surprise to me. Yeah, I know. It, it was amazing. And I was so surprised when I really, as you said, that Ren Tin Tin actually goes back to World War One, which it's, and really, when I think of working dogs, I think of Ren Tin Tin as like the first poster dog for working dogs. Right. Well, he was in many ways. While there had been dogs in film even before Rin Tin Tin, he really embodied the idea of the dog who was your helpmate. He was the the companion who would always be there and be at your side and in many instances take care of you better than a person might. So he was the first example of that idea of of a dog in popular culture being such a, a potent and important colleague in a way to to a human being. And I think it was very inspiring. I think people looked at the image of this dog who was portrayed in film as the ultimate friend and assistant and were really inspired by it. I think you're absolutely right. And I I love how in the book you go into a lot of different areas and you talk about the history of dogs in war. Mm-hmm. And how was that, that for you? Well, that was absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, to realize that I think we've all had this notion that there have been animals in, used in some capacity in war, but it was really pretty staggering to learn how important 
dogs have been because, you know, unlike a horse, which of course you knew horses were used in battle as transportation, as beasts of burden, but the idea of a dog working basically as a soldier, and that that was fascinating to me. Their presence, especially in World War One, was so profound and so significant in the war. There were, I believe it's 11 million animals used in one form or another in World War One, and obviously those weren't all dogs, but it was the animals' war, and that moment of time was when we first saw German Shepherds. Um, It was a new breed. They were used extensively in the German army, and they kind of excelled in that role as as military animals. It, I think, really changed the course of history with regards to our relationship to dogs. People saw them as incredibly capable and intelligent and able to do work that, you know, might otherwise be done by by a soldier. And I think that was a, made a very big difference in our perception of, of dogs. And again, dogs were used very extensively in World War II as well. And at that point, I think they were embraced with tremendous emotion and admiration that really has continued to this day. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more that it really set the stage. And and it's really as profound as some of our technological advances that we've seen in our times with the internet. I mean, I liken it to that because it did change things so much in how dogs worked beside humans. Because also after around World War One is when really the German shepherds started being used to help people who were blind. So it was just this whole world opened up. And, and Ren Tin Tin was really, again, the poster dog for that is what we all associated with that intelligent, highly intelligent, supreme canine being. You're right that that was important in many ways, not only did we see the dogs working on the battlefield, dogs working as guide dogs for the blind, it was also around the time that you had the famous gnome diphtheria vaccine run where teams of huskies raced through brutal weather to deliver diphtheria serum to the town of Nome, Alaska, and saved the town from certain devastation from epidemic. So the dogs who were involved in that race were celebrated all over the world, and they were taken out on the, they became celebrities for their work. So that was a really interesting time in in the history of our relationship to dogs, where we saw them as really capable and not just a nice warm companion and not just a farm animal, but as this working creature who could do some pretty extraordinary things. Yeah. As you said, I really think it changed the course of history in so many ways that that we're still discovering. I mean, as, as we look at military dogs today and all of the incredible tasks that they can achieve at, at levels that no technology can meet with their sense of smell and, and some of their other many talents, their resiliency, 
it's amazing. And I think we are still, you know, we have so much to discover about the intelligence of dogs and, and what they can do. I know Whistle shocks me every day with things that he does to me to make me more independent. And I'm just so thankful for Ren 1010 that he paved the way for that in so many ways. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, Ren 1010 was, you know, both a a movie star with everything that implies and he was the dog who belonged to a real person and you know the story of my book is certainly the story of their relationship and and the ups and downs that Lee Duncan who is the man who found the dog and raised him and trained him you know and he had a life that had some really significant ups and downs but it's also the story of the way we live with dogs, which includes having them as friends, as helpers, and as characters. So I, I really enjoyed that part of the book and seeing how we've lived with these animals and, and they've played so many different roles in our lives. Yeah, you did such a beautiful job of that, where you talked about so many different things that brought awareness to the whole historical perspective that was really beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. I really wanted people to to be able to see this book on a lot of different levels, rather than just a book about this movie star, but to, to read this, you know, very layered story of one man's relationship with his dog, which was very, very particular and and very moving, all the way to the very big picture of how dogs have factored into society. Yeah, the the whole piece about Hollywood and the silent movies, would you want to talk about that for a couple of minutes? That was such an intriguing part of the book. I mean, to begin with, of course, I had had no idea until I began work on the book that... Rintintin had existed well before the 1950s and that his first and, you know, perhaps greatest fame actually came in the 1920s in the silent film era. And one thing that was so interesting was realizing that dogs had a great stature in film at that time. And the fact that they don't talk made them actually perfect in (laughs) film, in silent film, because there was no sound. And unlike people who looked a little bit funny not having words come out of their mouth, a dog looked very natural on film. So dogs were huge stars in the 20s. There were 80 different German shepherds making movies at the same time that Rintintin came into his fame. Of course, most of those films are lost and we don't remember the films and we sadly don't remember the dogs either. But the big crisis came as it did for for many actors who had reached great acclaim during the silent film era which was suddenly talkies hit the screen and it was a huge novelty and people just couldn't get enough of it and studios even though they were making a lot of money on these dog films and certainly with Rin Tin Tin they were making all sorts of money and doing extremely well, their thought was that all their films going forward had to be talkies and the novelty was simply too potent. That was where they were going to put their efforts. And Lee Duncan, Rintintin's owner, 
just out of the blue, received a letter from the studio, Warner Brothers, where they were making all their movies, saying that Warner Brothers was going to terminate his contract. They were going to put all of their efforts as a studio into talkies, and his services would no longer be needed because everyone knows dogs can't talk. And that's a quote from the letter. So from a position of incredible success and stardom and acclaim, suddenly their contract was terminated, and Hollywood underwent a huge transformation at that time. It would be a little bit as if every single film from here on out was a 3D movie. You know, the technology was overwhelming, and there were many actors who did not make the transition because they may have looked good in a silent film, but they could not deliver a line. So they were consigned to the dustbin of history. Dogs, who had been such big stars in the 1920s and among the biggest money makers in Hollywood for their films, suddenly nobody was interested because they wanted movies where they could hear people talking. And Rintintin did bounce back, and that's part of what was kind of miraculous about his story. Every, every time the technology changed and most stars fell by the wayside, Rintintin reinvented himself or was reinvented in a way that accommodated the next wave of history. So at first, he just uh, Lee Duncan took him on the vaudeville circuit, and they performed live and kept body and soul together that way. And then they began making these sort of B-movies that were talkies, but mostly still action pictures. And while it was not the level of the movies he was making in the 20s, he obtained another lease on life with that in that period. And then World War II came around, and he became the U.S. Army's spokesman for a very significant program called Dogs for Defense, where uh, American citizens were encouraged to donate their pets to be used in the Army. Wow. Wow. That must have been a hard sell for a lot of people, but nobody else could do that better than Ren Tin Tin, right? Exactly. (laughs) And he proved to be very inspiring, I have to say. He seemed, you know, that program became very successful. And while it's hard for us to imagine taking our dog and donating it to be used in in a war and perhaps not returning, the American public responded with, as they did in every regard during the war, doing what they needed to do and even doing something that is pretty dramatic for us to even imagine, donating a dog. And many of those dogs were were killed in the line of duty. Yeah. Well, this is so fascinating. And we are going to take just a quick break and hear some important messages from our sponsors. But we're going to come right back and visit more with Susan and, and talk more about Lee Duncan. So come right back after these quick messages. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Every pet is unique. Maybe they're gray in the muzzle, yet young at heart. Maybe they're growing out of the puppy stage and into their paws and ears. 
or maybe they're just trying to maintain a more girlish figure. At PetSmart, we have the right food for your pet at a great value for you. PetSmart. Be better together. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart and save up to 30% on toys, collars, leashes, PetSmart gift cards, treats, and more. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart today. Like your business to reach out and invite in our audience. We have a brand new trademark concept called Info Seeds. Info Seeds are short 20 second seeds of information about your place of business, practice, or service. Is the best, most cost effective way to invite us in. We only have a limited number of slots left. For more information, visit the website petliferadio.com. Click on sponsorship information. There you can listen to a sample of Info Seed. Remember, only a limited number of opportunities are. Available. Coast to coast and around the world, it's All Behave with Arden Moore. Find out why cats and dogs do the things they do and get the latest buzz from wagging tongues and tails in Rin Tin Tinseltown. From famous pet experts and best-selling authors to television and movie stars, you'll get great tail-wagging pet tips and have a fur-flying fun time. All Behave with America's pet edutainer, Arden Moore. Every week on demand, this is the place for a special paparazzi treat, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio, and we're visiting today with best-selling author Susan Orlean. And before the break, we were talking about Renton Ten and the incredible impact he's had on on American life for sure. And I wanted to ask you, Susan, a little bit more about Lee Duncan, about the man that that actually found Renton Ten. How did he find him? It's an amazing story. Lee Duncan was a young man who grew up in California, a pretty lonely childhood. His father had abandoned the family. His mother had had to put him and his sister in an orphanage for a number of years because she simply couldn't manage. And Lee's greatest joy and the real connection he had in his life was to animals. He enlisted in the Army in the beginning of World War One, and as I said earlier, there were many, many, many animals used in the war, and Lee spent a lot of the time he was posted in Europe when he had time off just wandering around the countryside looking for dogs, and which might sound strange, but that was just who he was. In 1918, in September, Lee was sent to just do some reconnaissance in a a field that he was in France, I should say, with the army. He was sent to examine a field that the Allies had just taken back from the Germans. And this was in the Meuse Valley in France. He went to, you know, just walk around and see what was there. I think he was told to see if it would work well as a landing strip. He saw a building that had been hit by artillery, and he recognized 
that it was a dog kennel, just from its shape and dimensions. He went over to take a look at it, probably knowing that there was not going to be good news because it had been hit by a number of shells. And he went inside and there were, as he wrote in his journal, at least a dozen German shepherds that had belonged to the German army that had been killed. He was going to leave the kennel when he heard a little bit of noise in a back corner and he made his way toward that sound and found a female who had survive the bombing with a new litter of puppies that might have been only two or three days old. For somebody who was so attached to animals, as you can imagine, this is a really emotional moment and a kind of remarkable thing to find signs of life in, in what would have been a horrible scene. Many soldiers would have probably thought, I'm in the middle of a war. I'm going to have to leave these dogs. It's it's sad, but there's nothing I can do. But that was not the way Lee was wired. He was an animal lover, thick through and through. And he gathered up the puppies and, and the mother and took them back to his barracks, kept two of the puppies for himself and found other soldiers to take care of the other puppies and spent the rest of the war doing everything he could to keep these puppies alive and healthy. At the end of the war, it's not infrequent that a soldier might have a pet, and when the end of the war rolls around, they usually leave them. They find a local kid to take the pet. But in this case, Lee was determined to get these dogs back to the U.S., and he he nearly didn't, but he managed through the intervention of his captain to get permission to bring them back on the troop ship going back to the U.S. and get them back to California with him, which was no easy task. And with the intention just of having them as pets and then maybe showing them, maybe breeding them, because he he was very interested in dogs. And instead, fate intervened. He had Rintintin at a dog show, Rintintin was an incredibly athletic animal. Uh, he was in an agility competition and was flying over a fence of 11 feet. Someone caught it on film and sold it to a, a newsreel company. And it became a big sensation, as you can imagine. And Lee began thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe there's something to this. Maybe my <laughs> dog could be in the movies. Or at the very least, let me give it a try. And he began knocking on doors in Hollywood saying, my dog is gifted, talented, beautiful. And at night, Lee had written a screenplay for a film that, of course, the central character was a very heroic German shepherd. And his proposition to these studios was, hire my dog and buy my script. Seems like a pretty ambitious undertaking for basically a kid with no experience and no absolutely no connections in Hollywood, but he he managed to get in the door and, at Warner Brothers. They read his script and liked it and um, bought it, hired the dog, and the rest is history. Yeah, he seemed to have no formal training in, in lots of things, but yet he would try. He would definitely put himself out there because he didn't have any formal training of dogs either, right? He really taught himself. He, as far as I know, it was entirely hidden myths, 
based on a philosophy that he had from the very beginning, which was that the dog's responsiveness would depend entirely on how bonded the dog would be to its owner. He never let anybody else handle Rintintin or have much to do with him at all. So the dog was completely focused on him. Of course, he had had the dog since he was three days old. So Rintintin probably thought of Lee as his father or mother. And he didn't train the dog using food or any sort of bribes like that. He used praise, which he offered in small doses. And Rintintin, from the time he was a puppy, had had a, a toy that he loved. And Lee would let him play with that toy as a reward for him responding. So it was a pretty simple system that he never really changed much except for one thing, which was in the subsequent generations, he decided to let the dogs be handled by other people to socialize them more. He let them play with kids. He would invite Boy Scout troops out to his ranch to play with the dogs to just make them a little bit more social. The first Rintintin was was not known to be a very friendly dog. Yeah, it sounds like it. I should say he was known (laughs) to be a pretty unfriendly dog. (laughs) You know, not that he was nasty or, um, although there were actors who claimed that he was, but I think the truth of it was he was a dog who had one interest in his life, which was Lee Duncan. He just had no interest in other people, and he was very protective and possessive of Lee. And Lee decided that he didn't need to be so single-minded. The dog could still be well-trained and that perhaps it would be better for him to be a little more socialized. So the Rintin, the second and third and fourth, were much friendlier and much more used to being handled by other people. Yeah, I'm sure Lee, I'm guessing that as he learned more about working with dogs, it became apparent to him that that was a good idea. <laughs> and that's yes, good. As, although, as you know, the man who founded the German Shepherd breed was a great proponent of the idea that dogs should, to make a dog a really great working dog, they should only be handled by one person. That was his philosophy. So there were a lot of trainers at that time who felt that that was the only way to to get a dog to be truly well-trained. And Mm -hmm. I think over time that strictness changed a bit and there was a little bit of an appreciation that a dog could be a really good working dog and also be handled by more people. Right. Well, I know you said that you thought Lee Duncan was a a sad man. And I wondered what your thoughts were about his life and the fortunes he made and lost. I mean, it seemed like he went through so many things, ups and downs. You know, I think that he was happy because he absolutely loved his dog and he believed that the dog was special and that the world should know how special his dog was. And he achieved that. But his life was very circumscribed by that, you know, very, very singular desire. 
and I think that he didn't seem to have relationships that really flourished except for that. And I think that, you know, he had had a very, very lonely childhood, a really pretty lousy childhood, frankly. And and I think that made me feel that there was just a sadness that he never got over about being essentially a, a very solitary boy who who never got as much love as I think most children seek and need. And his first pets all were lost to him through means that were pretty brutal. Um, his very first pet was a lamb, and he just adored it. And the lamb ate some roses that belonged to his grandfather. And at the time, he was living on his grandfather's farm, and his grandfather had the lamb slaughtered. His next pet was a was a little dog that he just adored. And when his mother decided to move away from her parents' farm with Lee and her other child, she told Lee to leave the dog and they would come back and get him. And then she said, um, actually, they weren't going to come back and get him and that uh, there would, that the dog was going to, that he will never see the dog again and he shouldn't think about it. And it was just one of the saddest stories I think I've ever heard and seemed unnecessarily harsh. I mean, certainly there are times when kids have pets that they have to give up, but it seemed so cruel and and so so sad coming on the heels of losing that lamb and and him being really so alone in the world. So he had a connection to his animals that was also filled with a lot of emotion, much of which was was sad. Yeah. Well, you did such a remarkable job of telling all those stories. Because when I first heard about the book, I thought it was going to be just about Rent and Ten. But the wonderful thing about this book is it touches on so many other stories of Lee Duncan and all of his challenges and, and triumphs, as well as some of the other things we've talked about, the history of dogs and war, Hollywood, the silent movies. I mean, there's just so many fascinating pieces to this book. Oh, well, I'm so glad. You know, for me, it was it was a wonderful learning experience. I, I went into it not really knowing what I was going to find. And what I found was a really, really rich story that just fascinated me on so many levels, on everything that you mentioned and more. And, you know, finally, it's a very human story of just about the life of the people who were so attached to this dog and to the to the idea and desire of making this dog kind of live forever. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's so beautiful. And what's your next project? Have you decided yet? I haven't decided yet. I'm <laughs> I'm not sure at all. Right now, I'm still very involved in the book. It's just come out in um, Britain and Australia, and I'm really having fun talking about it and actually hoping to just continue being engaged with it for a while. And then I'll 
dive into my next project, whatever that might be. Yeah, well, we certainly can understand that you could talk about this for quite some time, but we definitely look forward to your next project because the way that you do your investigative writing is is really wonderful for the reader. Oh, well, thank you so much. (laughs) And I assure you it was a labor of love. Well, we're so glad that you could be with us today and, and talk with us. We really appreciate it, Susan. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care, Marcy. Thank you. And we want to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And we also want to thank you for our emails that you've been sending us. We love to hear from you. So please keep those coming. And you can email me at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at PetLifeRadio.com. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, which is Working Like Dogs. So please stay in touch. We love to hear from you. And we hope you'll come back and be with us again soon. So take good care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.